Hey, welcome to Endow. This week on the show, we talk with Simon Peacock on some of the best arguments for the reliability of the New Testament, including an argument against it, as well as why having this knowledge is important in the 21st century. If we don't believe in the absolute authority and reliability of Scripture, then we're not going to be reading the Bible that much. And so, as I became more confident in the authority of the Bible, then I read it more. And so, if we want our churches, if we want our young adults to be reading the Bible more, then we need to give them a greater confidence in the reliability. Hey, welcome again to In Doubt. My name is Isaac, and I have the great privilege of hosting this show you're listening to. If you're new to In Doubt, let me welcome you here. If you didn't know, In Doubt exists to bring the gospel to the many issues of life and faith that we all face every day to cultivate conversation. And we do this primarily through this show you're listening to. Uh, it's a weekly show that dives into a topic by having a conversation about that topic with a guest from around the world. That could be a Christian author, leader, pastor, uh, someone like that. So simply head to indoubt.ca if you want to check out all of the past conversations. And I think this week is, goodness, episode 130. So there's lots uh, to choose from. Uh, we also write articles. We film Bible studies. We host live events on tough topics. We've done sexual identity. We've done recreational marijuana. For all that, again, just go to indoubt.ca. This week, as I said at the beginning, we talk with Simon Peacock on the reliability of the New Testament. You know, it's a great conversation that I know will benefit you, whether you're already you know, a believer and you have no issues with the Bible, or perhaps you're a skeptic. Hopefully what's said in this conversation will help you think more critically and biblically about the reliability of the New Testament. So here's my conversation with Simon. With me today is Simon Peacock. Simon is a student ministries assistant at Coquitlam Alliance Church outside of Vancouver, BC, for those who are unfamiliar with the area. He's also the founder of The Death of Doctrine, which we're going to get into in just a moment. Uh, he's a husband to Jenna and a father to Everett. And yeah, it's just great to have you in the studio today. That's awesome. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Isaac. You were here with a friend of ours, Dave Johnson, like two years ago. Yeah. And he dragged you along and... We just got you to talk. Yep. I, I, I'm trying to remember what that even was on. I feel like it was on, dis, was it decision making? Do you yeah, remember? it was on like discerning God's will. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's so good. Um, why don't you first just kind of share with us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so I'm Simon and originally from England, as you can probably tell from the accent. And so <laughs> I've been out here in Canada for a couple of years now, moved out here pursuing a girl who I'm now married to. And uh, so we got married just after I finished Bible college in England. So graduated two years ago, and then a week after I graduated from Bible college, moved out here, 5,000 miles away from family and friends, and uh, got married. And then we had a little Everett year after that. That's awesome. So, That's so good. And you're working at, obviously, Coquitlam Alliance Church. What do you do there? Yeah, so I'm the student ministries assistant. Essentially, I help and aid both the young adults ministry alongside Pastor Dave Johnson and the youth ministry alongside Cameron Daly and, uh, and Ryan Drennan. And so I kind of just try to keep a, an eye on the big picture and yeah. help them with anything that comes along, preach a bit ethos as well, and involved with the, the leadership for those two ministries. So it's a, it's a great time. So one day out of your week, it's like crazy youth group games. Yeah. And then the next week with young adults. Yep. It's what is that? <laughs> and, oh, it's it's such a mix, man. Because with you know, I work alongside people from all the ages of grade six up until thirty years old, and so yeah, definitely you know, mix of 
mix of the people that I interact with, ethos. You know, we we have services on Sunday night, and so we tackle a number of different topics, and we look at scripture in depth. And then with youth, then we do. Uh, we just actually had this past weekend what we call the lock-in. So every year we do this 12-hour. 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. All the middle schoolers, grades six to eight. We had we had 220 kids this oh past weekend, and so you know by the time it gets to 6 a.m. in the morning, all of I'm us done. over the age of kind of 18 are, are done. <laughs> yeah, I to be honest, I I hated lock-ins when I grew up because yep. I went to a few. And I'm just like this is I can't do it. It's just yeah. oh, did you stay up the whole time? I did. Yeah. Oh, Simon, <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Okay, um, before we get into our topic today. Um, you've founded The Death of Doctrine. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what, what that is. Yeah, so where that kind of came out from, I founded it back in, I think it was August of last year, 2017, and there were three kind of aspects to it. The first is a recognition. I think there's a, a neglect of theology among Christians in the West today. And then second is a kind of biblical illiteracy. People don't know and don't read the scriptures. And then third is just being able to engage with culture well. So those are the three aspects, kind of trying to respond to and give answers to the biblical literacy, the mm-hmm. neglect of theology, and engagement with culture. And so it's quite broad. You know, yeah. we've done a different number of different articles, uh, some looking at kind of social media and how, for instance, quotes like misquotes. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. C.S. Lewis, you know, as the great C.S. Lewis said, such and such. Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't actually come from C.S. Lewis. And actually, like as Christians, we should be careful what we post because yeah. when we're talking about the truthfulness of of the scriptures and the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection, and then we just pull out some random quote yeah, from yeah, who yeah. knows where <laughs> and attribute it to C.S. Lewis, why should people trust what we say? And so that's an example of the kind of things that we're looking at. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'll I'll it's the death of doctrine.com if you're interested with yeah. that. But that's that's awesome. All right. So we're gonna be talking today a little bit about uh the New Testament manuscripts and their reliability and stuff like that, uh, which is awesome. And it's really cool to have Simon, who is a who is is a millennial, is someone that is young, and he's like kind of just dove into some of these books and he's learned and he's understood some of these things. Um, and it's just encouraging to have someone younger like ourselves appear that knows these things. It's really important. So, anyways, I guess the first kind of question is, what makes you personally interested in this? Definitely. So probably where. It- first came from is when I was around about 17 years old, 15, 16, 17, and then I started really thinking more deeply about the the faith that I had, quote unquote, inherited from my parents. And actually, yeah, I really need to grasp with this. And if I truly do believe this, then I should start reading the Bible more and such. And so I started reading through the Bible, read through the Bible the the whole way for the first time when I was 17 years old. And from that had number of different questions, theological questions, but also questions about the reliability of the Bible. And so then I started digging deeper into different books, looking at what different uh, apologists says. I became acquainted with the topic of apologetics. And so over that time, then I gradually built up this picture of, okay, why should I believe that the Christian scriptures are reliable? And as that happened, then I saw that I was more encouraged to actually dig deeper into the the Bible itself. Like as I became more encouraged by its authenticity and reliability, then I was more encouraged to actually read this and right. dig deeper into it. So it wasn't just like there wasn't just this natural interest in this 
historical kind of endeavor, it was it was actually to the point of reading the Bible more and being more devoted to it. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of, that was the starting point, yeah. and then that was the natural consequence from yeah. that as well. That's awesome. Yeah, and hopefully that's kind of what uh, we're able to help people think critically and biblically about this so that they would have that same end that you did as well. Um, I guess before we get into the kind of the more, some of the, I don't know if arguments is the right word, but just some of these kind of uh, different things that speak to the reliability of the Testament manuscripts, why do you think we need to be talking about this in the 21st you know, century? Because someone, I'm sure someone, maybe your young adults group or your youth group saying like, why are you spending all this time researching this when it's just about Jesus and the gospel, sharing the gospel? Why, why do we need to like know how many manuscripts compared to this yeah. person or whatever, you know? I think like the reason that the reliability of the New Testament is so important is that without that, we don't have the gospel. And so some people might say like, okay, forget about the academic stuff, forget about reliability and, you know, supposed contradictions or all these different questions. You know, I just, you know, I believe I have faith and we need to be preaching the gospel. Right. The problem is, is that's, that's where we get the gospel from. We get it from the New Testament documents that tells the, the true story of Jesus and the gospel. And so there's that aspect. We also need to be able to respond to questions that people have when they ask us about our faith. You know, you think of the verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, 15, and Peter says about like, you know, make sure that you're prepared to give an answer for those that ask you about the hope that you have. And so that's a responsibility that we actually have as Christians to be able to respond to the questions that people have to us about our faith. And then there's also the final thing, which is, I think, and this is what I've seen in my own life, okay. which is if we don't believe in the absolute authority and reliability of scripture, then we're not going to be reading the Bible that much. And so what I saw in my life is as I became more confident in the authority of the Bible, then I read it more. And so if we want our churches, if we want our young adults to be reading the Bible more, then we need to give them a greater confidence in the reliability. That's so good. I love it. And I guess like a, a natural um, situation would be here's someone going out and they're, they've they've shared the gospel. They've uh, they're you know doing evangelism, and that person says that's awesome. Like how can we trust that that's true? And then instantly, if we if you knew just some even just some of the basic kind of understandings of the reliability, you'd be able to say oh perfect like boom boom boom. And that person has now this chunk of like okay this is why I can trust this as well, which just makes total sense in evangelism. Totally, 100%. Yeah. All right. Um, In your studies of the subject, because I know you have done a lot of reading and stuff like that, what would you say are the few kind of big cases where you could really (laughs) convince a skeptic on the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts? Yeah. I think it's such a broad question. And so we kind of (laughs) need to split into a couple of things. And so first of all, you can split it into internal evidence or external evidence internal evidence would be, well, are the New Testament scriptures consistent within themselves? Um, Or is there anything within the New Testament that gives evidence that, for instance, it was written by eyewitnesses, as it claims to have done? And you have external witness. And so what are the things outside of the New Testament that corroborate the claims that it has? Is there archaeology? Is there there other documents? Uh, Things like that. So there's kind of those two aspects. Then there's another couple of questions, which is the first would be the the question of the text. How do we know that the scriptures that we have in front of us today 
are an accurate representation of what was written in the first place. Because if we can't be sure of that, or if we know that that's not correct, then we can just scrap the whole thing. It doesn't yeah. even matter. And then the, if we can affirm that, then the second question is the, the truthfulness. So the question of the text and then the question of the truthfulness. And so, okay, we've established this is what it actually said. Now, is what it actually said true and reliable? <laughs> and so kind of leading on from that, then sure. I'd say the first evidence would be the, the external evidence uh, for the question of the text, which is the, the manuscripts. And so when we look at the actual number of manuscripts, the, the handwritten copies that we have of the New Testament, then we have such a, a breadth of evidence. And so you think we've got, uh, I think the latest count is, it's over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Okay. And somewhere along the lines of over 18,000 manuscripts of other languages. So we have almost 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, these are kind of mixed, and so you have uh, some which would just be a few verses. You have some which are the entire New Testament or the entire Old and New Testament put together. And so the earliest one would be P52, Papyrus 52. Okay. And this is dated to 130 AD, thereabouts. Now, it only contains five verses from John's gospel. <laughs> but, you know, if you really just think about it, like the fact that we have an actual manuscript, an actual copy of part of John's gospel from AD 130, when we're talking about John's gospel being written kind of the end of the first century. So we're talking about a gap of kind of maximum 50 years. Yeah, yeah. In comparison to anything else, that is just phenomenal. And when we think about even just the actual material of papyrus and how it's, you know, it's not very robust, it's, it's going to fall apart. And so the only papyri that we really have are those that have been, um, for instance, found in Egypt or somewhere where it's really dry. And the it's Dead been, Scrolls maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, really dry or protected. Yeah. And so it's just amazing what the evidence, the textual evidence that we actually have for, okay, this is what the New Testament says. And then also when we compare these manuscripts, then we can say, um, you know, there are some differences here. There's kind of four different categories that, that we can put these differences in. There's, um, this is how Daniel Wallace, a textual critic, New Testament reliability guy, this is how he puts it. There's viability and there's meaningfulness. And so you can have something that's not viable and not meaningful. And so viable would be like, there's no chance that, you know, it's one manuscript that says this. Okay, it doesn't even matter then. Like, we, we, this clearly isn't the original reading. Right. Uh, viability would be, if, uh, or viability would be, okay, there's, there's a lot of manuscripts that have this reading. And there's also a lot that have this, this other reading. And then there's meaningfulness, which is, does it actually change anything? Like, for instance... Would we even translate it differently? Is it, you know, certain prepositions being used? And in another manuscript, it has a different preposition. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't even be translated differently. And so Daniel Wallace's conclusion is, when we actually look at those that are both meaningful and viable, then we're left with less than 1% of all the variants. Yeah. And so when we get to that point, then we can say, okay, the New Testament, as we have in front of it, the kind of the, the critical Greek editions that we have, that is, that's 99% of what Paul, what Luke, what Matthew originally wrote. And so 
that's just, you know, the the analogy that's sometimes used is this is like a game of telephone. And okay. so, you know, you just you yeah, yeah, whisper yeah. something, someone's there, and then you pass it down. And in the end, it's just so different. And, yeah. you know, the the New Testament is like that. Right. Whereas actually, it's completely, completely different. And so the conclusion that we come to is, no, you, you actually have to grapple with the fact that what we have in front of us is what was originally written. Yeah. And I remember doing a little bit of work myself thinking about this and if you were a scribe, and maybe you know a little bit about this too, but it was a very like important and um, uh, kind of a strict environment when you were writing, copying these kind of things. It wasn't yep. just this like thrown up together. Oh, I'll I'll do that, you know. But sometimes like you will find like a uh, a little incoherence because they wrote you twice. Yeah. But who wouldn't if they're writing for long a long time, right? Certainly. And you have different variants, and so one would be you know, accidental, they accidentally misspell a yeah, word yeah. or, and you can easily figure out, oh no, they just meant this or this was the problem. Um, and then there's also, you know, slightly more complex ones. And so there's an addition, like an, an additional bit of information, which is clearly intentional, but why is that there? And then that's when you weigh up the kind of, okay, how many manuscripts have this reading? How early are those manuscripts? And then also different kind of criteria for figuring out what the original reading was. So for instance, one of these criteria would be um, the the criteria of difficulty. But when you look at these manuscripts, it tends to be the case that the more difficult to understand reading is the more original one. Because people or scribes will naturally try and e- even out, like iron out the inconsistencies. And so with things like that, then you can come to a very close uh, representation of what the New Testament said in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So... In your studies, what have you found to be the piece of evidence that you just find so fascinating? Maybe you've already said it, but what is it that is just like kind of opened your, kind of put the light bulb on like, oh my goodness, this is really, this is really important. Yeah, I think the, um, this is an argument that I wasn't familiar with until probably a couple of years ago. And it's interesting because it it seems to have been come about and been popular in the 19th century and then just kind of been buried for a hundred years. And it's the argument of, undesigned coincidences. And so what this is, is it's when one account of an event leaves out a bit of information, which is then filled in or often quite incidentally by a different account, which helps to answer some natural questions raised from uh, the first. And so the first person to realize this was William Paley. And then there was this guy called J.J. Blunt in the 18th century that wrote this book called The Undesigned Coincidences of the Gospels. Okay. And so an example of this would be, for instance, you go to John's gospel and you go to chapter six and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And you see that Jesus uh, turns to Philip, one of his disciples, and says, Philip, where do you think that we should buy bread for all these people? Right. And you think, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. I wonder why he asked Philip. Maybe it's because he was just the closest guy to him. But then actually you go to Luke's gospel. And what it says in Luke is it says, that the place that this took place, the place that the feeding of the 5,000 took place was Bethsaida. Okay. And then you go back to John's gospel and earlier on it says, Philip came from Bethsaida. And so then you think, oh, okay. So the reason that Jesus asks Philip uh, why, where they should find bread is because Philip is from that place. He's he's a local lad. He'll know the places. He'll know the bread joints. (laughs) Yeah. He knows the bakeries close (laughs) by. He's like, okay, you need to check out this, this bread. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, and so it's these two Gospels that separate, they 
have information, and together they fit like a yeah. jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. And these are undesigned coincidences. These are so subtle that what it points to is these are eyewitness accounts that are describing the same events but from different perspectives. Which is exactly it's exactly what you would expect from two people describing the same event um, from a different perspective. Yeah, I love that. And what's kind of cool about that too is that you didn't have to do any uh, you know major work outside of the Bible to find that out. If you were just studying your Bible, you could come across some of those things. Like it's 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 uh, it's evidence in itself when you read through the different Gospels, which is really cool. Yeah, it really is. And definitely it takes a detective's eye to figure these things yeah, out. Absolutely. Um, but it's there. It's in the text yeah. itself. It's, it's internal evidence. We have a few more questions left, Simon, but I, I was kind of interested in this one. What has been, I don't want to say maybe the most convincing, but what has been an argument against the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts that you've been like, oh, that's actually, that's not a bad argument against it? Yeah, I think... One of them would be the the supposed contradictions in the New Testament. Okay. Hey, you know what? Some of these are, are tricky. There are some which certainly there are completely easy answers for. So, for instance, you th- you think about Jesus and his disciples traveling to the the Gerasenes, and in one gospel it says uh, that uh, you know a demoniac met them, a demon possessed guy met them, and in another one it says and two demon possessed guys were there. And you're like, well, one says one, one says two. Actually. That's not a contradiction. What it is, is it the same event from two perspectives. One gospel writer is focusing on the most important guy. For some reason, he just want to, wants to focus on this one guy, so he doesn't even mention the other guy. It's like right. if I, if I you know, go to church on a Sunday morning, and I come home, and I say to my wife, you know, I, I spoke to John earlier, and uh, we had this conversation. She turns and says, you liar, because I know that you spoke to Dave as well. I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, yeah, yeah, just yeah. focusing <laughs> on the one that right. I said. absolutely. So, yeah, so there are those that can be easily explained. But when you kind of whittle through these, there's a couple which is still difficult and still I have questions about. Think of Judas's, the death of Judas. Mm-hmm. And so in one place it's, it talks about him uh, hanging himself and in another place, it talks about him falling kind of headlong and his his guts spilling open, which yeah. is kind of gruesome. But, um, you know, and there are there are plausible explanations for these, but there's still questions I have. Yeah. Now, I think, like, the flip side of this is when we're talking about the reliability of the Bible, this actually really, this, this actually points to, to the reliability itself as well. And so when you see differences... What you would expect from one source, just one source, is all of the details to be exactly the same. And then you'd start to get a bit suspicious and be like, well, I think this is just, I think this is just from one place that all of these things are coming from. When you start to get these variations, then it seems much more authentic. It's what you would expect from different people talking about the same things. And so, yeah, I think one of the arguments would be the supposed contradictions. And there's still certainly a few questions. And this is questions that scholars would still have and scholars still debate. But actually on the flip side, it points to the reliability and the authenticity and the eyewitness accounts 
all of the New Testament. And I guess what you're modeling to us as well is that when you come up to a contradiction, because you might, if you're reading your Bible through the Gospels, you're probably going to find a contradiction. It's not, it shouldn't be a wall or a barrier for you to be like, oh, I can't trust this. It's like, no, let's just dig a little deeper and let's try to find a plausible explanation for it. That's important. Um, As we wrap up here, uh, how can, you know, we've talked a little bit about this. We scratched the surface. How can we now, someone's listening and they're on the radio or on the podcast, how can they take what we've learned and actually apply it to their task of sharing the gospel? Mm. I think one of the things that I've encountered is when I come across someone who who doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't believe um, in the New Testament, they are actually very surprised to know, like, what we have now is what was originally written. So the the most common thing I come across is it's like the game telephone. You know, we have no idea what originally said. Whereas actually it's it's not as easy as that. And you kind of need to challenge your friends and say, That's good. Hey, like, actually, like, this isn't as easy as that. You can't just use a get out of jail free card. <laughs> yeah. No, you have to grapple with this. Like, this is what it originally said. This is what, what it was written in the first century. And so, uh, and there's evidence for it being eyewitnesses. And so you're going you're gonna to have to do better than that. Yeah. Really think this through. And when we're talking about it being the, the evidence of eyewitnesses and that these disciples, these guys that wrote down these events ended up dying for their faith as well. And you start to compile these, these things, then it's, it gets to, uh, a really challenging way of, of sharing the faith. Like, you know, you start to really question people's just natural assumptions, I guess. Absolutely. I think there's also a flip side, which is one of the difficulties is to do with the the presuppositions that people bring to reading the Bible. Yeah. So for instance, the, the miracles. And so, no, we know that miracles don't happen. It's just, it, they don't happen. Therefore, the New Testament is wrong. However, you can't pick and choose. And so then another challenge would be, hey, if you really believe that, then, well, we have verifiable facts from the New Testament, and we know that they're true even in the very subtle details. So why are you picking and choosing and then just saying, no, because of something that I've already decided beforehand, then these things can't be correct. Actually, I think that's a challenge to that yeah, view. As I love well. it. So really, you're, how do we kind of apply this to evangelism is to challenge, like in a good way, challenge your friends. Yeah. I love that. That's really good. Um, thank you so much, Simon, uh, for hanging with us today. And if you're listening and uh, you're interested in more of kind of what Simon's talking about, we talked a little bit about the death of doctrine. Go to thedeathofdoctrine.com. And I know that you even did like a, a like a sermon kind of on the reliability of the Bible as well. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So that's on Death of Doctrine. Yep. Uh, you can go check that out because I'm sure that he probably talks even more detail about some of these things. But anyways, thanks so much for hanging with us today, Simon. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Simon Peacock. To find out more, head to thedeathofdoctrine.com. And as I mentioned in our conversation, Simon has presented on this issue in more length at his church, and the video to that message is on thedeathofdoctrine.com. So certainly check that out. Also, we had the great privilege, as most of you know, if you're, you know, if you're a regular listener of In Doubt, uh, in episode 103 and 104, we got to talk with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. And we went into length about many skeptical assertions, and he sort of helped debunk and, you know, demyth some of those uh, skeptical claims. So uh, some of them are about the reliability of the Bible. So if you even want to hear more and, you know, this conversation has spurred you on to consider this more, definitely check out episode 103 and 104, and you can do that on our site, indoubt.ca. Now, as many of you know, 
Uh, in Doubt is a charity. We rely on God's provision through generous donors across this nation. So if you'd be interested in donating financially to this ministry and our mission, we'd be so appreciative. Simply click the donate button and follow the simple instructions at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Also, connect with us online this week. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. If you have stories or anything like that, we'd love to hear it. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we chat with Executive Director of the Gospel Coalition Canada, Wyatt Graham, on faith in Canada. We'll see you then. Indoubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S.